0: Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Jaw and Adam Brewer.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. This week, we don't have any guests. It's just Adam and me. And we're going to talk about some news that we've missed in the last couple of weeks with our guests. The first one, I just think this is a super interesting story. If you missed it, it's interesting and certainly not a worry for most organizations. But there was an organization that was able to use use deep learning models to predict passwords from keyboard keystrokes recorded with a microphone with up to 95% accuracy. And it's like one of those side channel attacks that you hear of. There's an Israeli red team research where they looked at CPU fan speeds or like the lights when the power would draw would be different from the motherboard. And so it's one of those like, let me steal information from another way that most people haven't thought of and while this certainly is a concern especially with AI models getting smarter and smarter every day I think most people won't have to worry about this type of attack however if you are a high value target you might want to keep your mic away from the keyboard and especially if you're using like a mechanical keyboard and can you really hear those keystrokes maybe switch to a dynamic mic instead of a condenser mic those condenser mics like blue mic and all that they really pick up sound Externally versus the dynamic mics like Adam and I use for our podcast, where you really have to speak into the mic versus picking up external sounds, which is great. So just one of those really interesting attacks that's fun to read about. I hate to well actually you, but my mic actually is a condenser
0: mic. It has a super cardioid pickup pattern. So the pickup pattern is very small. So if I move away from the microphone at all, the pickup goes away really, really quickly. So kind of the benefits of both the condenser and dynamic mic when you have that really tight pickup pattern. Anyhow, on topic, this is interesting. This is really cool. This is straight out of a Mission Impossible movie or something like that. The thing I encourage our listeners to do always is measure the risk of something and the probability of something and take a commensurate response. And that goes both ways. I have worked in IT where I had folks in our information security department make outrageous claims of things that are in the borderline tinfoil hat category. I had an InfoSec leader say things like, she literally just does not use Bluetooth on her phone, period, does not trust it. And that might be fine if you have a very Very low risk tolerance. But I think articulating that, especially in mixed audiences, is not effective because a lot of people, especially maybe people who spend a lot of time in their cars and need to conduct business, telling them, like, don't use a Bluetooth attachment in your car is a non starter. So instead, how can we secure that appropriately? What are appropriate steps to do? Don't connect to unusual devices. Make sure you do software updates. Those are things where we can meaningfully reduce the risk surface without taking on an extreme position. So that said, this is interesting, this is really cool. Should this change the way you approach your day-to-day? Absolutely not, but it's things to be aware of as our risk grows over time, and if these attacks get better, 95% accuracy, if that grows, 98%, things we need to be legitimately concerned about, and again, maybe another reason why password is something that needs to go away. Passwordless technologies don't have the same risk. If I just have to stare into my camera and my Surface device unlocks with just my facial recognition with Windows Hello, that's an improvement. And then there's no risk. There's no attack surface here. So think about how interrelated all these things are and make appropriate response. But man, it is cool.
1: Well done out of them. Great call out on the passwordless technology. This is definitely one of the mitigations. It exists today. We've done several shows on it. So take a look at some of our previous shows on passwordless and start going down that journey. The next story that I wanted to talk about was about a month ago now, July third. 31st the white house published an education plan for cybersecurity workforce and i was really happy with this because it's really the first of its kind that the us government has Published, and what they're really trying to do is, you know, do the thing that employers, agencies, and universities have really struggled to do over the last few years, which is meet the growing demand for cybersecurity workers in the United States. It matters a lot because most people have some sort of statistic where there's an unfilled number of cyber jobs. Like the statistic I have here is 69%. Nice. But <laughs> As well, you know, as the number of cybersecurity workers within the companies, they're usually fairly stressed out. And because there's this need, they're taking on more workload and they're getting burnt out. Like if you ask some of your cybersecurity folks, they're probably very stressed out. They're very busy all the time. And having more workers to take that load off of them is extremely important for their mental health. The details of the strategy include a bunch of new initiatives that will affect the entire federal Federal government. So they're doing some studies on how to boost compensation for federal cyber roles across agencies. They're trying to make hiring more flexible. They're training government human resources specialists in hiring cybersecurity personnel, which is super important. Like when I look at job descriptions, I know immediately if it was written by someone who understands the role versus just some general HR person who cut and pasted something from, you know, wherever they found the job description from. It doesn't really explain or look for the requirements for that particular position. The Bureau of Labor Statistics and Census Bureau will set up new ways to measure the health of the cybersecurity industry, which include statistics measuring economic and employment trends. And the Office of National Cyber Director, the ONCD, is also looking to establish an independent national center for cyber data. They're also looking at developing a new presidential cyber award. I thought this was interesting. If you grew up in the eighties, like I did, there used to be something called the Presidential Youth Fitness Award. I don't know if that still exists not but it was always kind of fun to do that test in gym class they're doing this for students cyber skills so it's a way to recognize students in their cyber skills and with this new presidential cyber award and the federal government's also planning to create a paid fellowship for new cyber educators also very important because teachers are the lifeblood for our students so if we don't have skilled educators then we're not going to be able to develop a new cyber workforce so what i took away from this whole thing was they're really looking at a holistic approach to solving the cybersecurity industry issues and trying to close that gap. One of the key tenets of the strategy is providing cyber literacy skills for all Americans, as well as looking at salary discrepancies to make the public sector work more competitive to the high paying Silicon Valley roles. All in all, great job by the administration. We definitely need something like this to help kickstart getting that cybersecurity workforce to fill that gap that we have today.
0: The first bullet point was about improving government's ability, the federal government's ability to hire cyber positions. And these are really positive steps in the right direction as far as making that compensation competitive with private industry and teaching HR specialists how to best hire for those positions, the things to look for. That's really positive. The more demand grows, eventually supply will catch up because there will be those economic forces that drive supply upward. It becomes more and more and more attractive. And eventually we do catch up. So increasing demand further is a great first step. So I love that. I love the idea of creating cyber literacy across the globe, or at least across the entire population of the United States. That's a really powerful step too, because I know a lot of times we run into things where people just don't know better. They haven't been taught the right way. And a lot of the same advice gets parroted on like the nightly news that isn't even accurate anymore. I was really dumbfounded when I was at the Iowa Tech Summit, and this is a few years ago now, but it's still timely enough that this is relevant. And they had an FBI specialist, for lack of a better word, come in and was providing cybersecurity tips to the people attending, which tend to be people in frontline IT type roles, like actual implementers of technology. And this person from the FBI was still parroting things like change your password every ninety days, make sure you're using all four character sets, uppercase, lowercase, numbers, and symbols, like. A lot of this now disproven password advice. And it was like, my goodness, our cyber literacy is still very poor. Every time I see people on like my social feeds complaining about, well, I had to reset my password again and I forgot what it was, I say, go tell your IT department, Microsoft's been saying since 2016 to stop rotating passwords. Start pushing back on this. We need to create a better amount of cyber literacy. So that's a great first step, provided it's done correctly. If we're just gonna teach people to keep rotating their passwords and using all the complexity requirements, that's that's not going to get us to where we want to be. So I'm for this. I hope the guidance is actually forward-facing and representative of best practices in 2023. But everything else here is really great. Oh, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Census Bureau measuring the health of the cybersecurity labor market. Love that because we can't make meaningful change or figure out what we need to change until we have accurate measurements of the current state. So I love that too, is that's always a great baseline for anything you're trying trying to do. When you're trying to solve any challenge or take on any project, the first thing you need to do is make sure you have really good data so then you can make data-driven decisions as a result of it. So that's a great step as well. Overall, thrilled with this. This is great. It's so refreshing to have an administration that is prioritizing this and is taking steps to improve this. And I really, really hope this helps. I am seeing, by the way, trends in the positive direction on some of these things. So I know when I was hired at Microsoft, just to be completely candid, what Microsoft offered me in terms of total compensation was light years beyond what I had the opportunity to make in IT. That has changed. So when I talk to folks today, if they leave like a Silicon Valley, like a tech industry company and go to more IT within their local industry or their local companies, their compensation is much closer, if not better in some cases than tech giants today. We have seen that rising tide actually successfully lift all ships to where that is competitive today. I've had conversations where my former manager from my job prior to leaving for Microsoft said, I can pay Microsoft's salary today. I couldn't in 2017. He's like, I can now. And so I think that's interesting. So getting government in on that game too, that just helps across the board because like you said, Andy, they're tough jobs and they deserve a high level of compensation to do them because they're a unique skill set. There's a high level of stress. There's an extremely high level of importance to on going function of companies and enterprise. And there's an incredibly high ongoing learning component. Almost rivaled by nothing, maybe medicine is in the ballpark of this where you really need to stay up on modern medicine and current medical research. But I'd say cyber even more than that. Like If you're not keeping up minute to minute, day to day, you are falling behind. And I can't think of many other career fields that require that dedication to learning in the same way this does. So awesome news. Really excited about this. Hope we start to see these tangible benefits continue to drive the state of our industry forward and improve the quality of life for everyone working in cybersecurity.
1: Yeah. And having worked for the federal government in a military position, I can tell you this isn't anything new when the government is looking at specialized roles and providing compensation that is similar to the private industry. So for example, there are, of course, lawyers and doctors in the military, right? Everyone's heard of the JAG Corps and the Medical Corps. And of course, Of course, if you are say a specific rank, let's say a major in the Air Force or in the Army, you're all paid the same, regardless of if you are logistics or cybersecurity or a physician. But those specialized positions will get an additional compensation, usually some sort of bonus that will kind of help. You're never really gonna get to the same point as private industry. That's just the name of the game as the federal government. But you can do things to help bring you up a little bit more. But then there's other benefits, right? Like Job security, you probably almost never get laid off from the federal government, as well as the retirement. There's still, you know, you serve 20 years and you get retirement benefits for the rest of your life. So, you know, I think when they start looking at this and they start trying to recruit, you know, maybe signing bonuses, getting bonuses yearly to get them up to more private industry, this will definitely help secure or like make that gap smaller. So the next piece that I wanted to talk about and the final piece, really because I think we're going to spend the bulk of the time talking about this is IBM released a report called the cost of a data breach and really, really good. If you haven't had a chance to read through this, there's an executive summary as with most of these big reports. And then within that report will be details of a lot of the data that they found. This is available to anyone who wants to use the link. It's not gated behind anything or any type of sales play and It's done by IBM, so we usually mention that Adam and I work for Microsoft. This is completely third-party, and it's a really, really good report to go through. A lot of statistics that you can make data-driven decisions towards what you might be using for securing your industry.
0: Yeah. And IBM has published this for many years now, and it's considered the gold standard. In fact, a lot of our sales collateral at Microsoft, when we're telling people, hey, the risks of a breach have never been greater, the costs have never been higher. Do you know what report we quote in our Microsoft sales materials? We quote the IBM cost of a data breach report. So this has wide industry acceptance for its value and validity and is a great report. They do it every year. So this is something any InfoSec professional should have on their annual reading list. I didn't know This was out for this year, Andy. I'm going to check this out when we're done with the show.
1: So some of the highlights are... The likelihood of a breach is extremely high. Both the total cost of a data breach is around $4.45 million, and then initially and long-term expensive. So the total cost of a breach being 4.45 million is up 15% from 2020, where it was 3.86 million. The three leading variables to reducing overall cost of data breach is security and AI automation, DevSecOps, and high use of IR or incident response. And respectively, you know, it's like 1.76 million for security and automation. DevSecOps can save you about 1.68 million and incident response can save you about 1.5 million. Destructive attacks, the ones that leave systems inoperable and ransomware accounted for 25% and 24% respectively. So between the two of them, that was about 50% of all attacks. I haven't really heard of many companies in the news that actually have suffered from destructive attacks. So I found that really interesting because what do you do when they leave your systems completely inoperable, right? So that was an interesting statistic. Identifying the attacks. I also found this to be Really, really interesting. Only a third of all the attacks were detected by organizations' internal tools. Forty percent of the attacks were identified by an MSSP. Twenty-seven percent of the attacks were disclosed by the, the hacker themselves. So think about that. Like almost a quarter of the attacks, the organizations actually were told by the attacker, like, "Hey, we breached your systems. Maybe you should do something." And then almost half of the attacks were identified by an MSSP. That statistic right there. I want you guys to keep in your mind because mssps play a big part in this report on identification and remediation so orgs with an mssp were able to identify and contain breaches in 80 percent of the time so there's a ton of statistics on mssps but in general orgs that use an mssp were able to identify attacks quicker they were able to remediate them quicker in general it was a good thing so if you haven't talked about an mssp at your organization that's probably the good time to take a look because the risk reduction and the cost reduction of an attack is greatly reduced if you have an mssp and that's a managed security service provider where they're probably managing your SOC or helping elevate alerts to you and helping you sort through the chaff of all the different alerts that might impact your analyst from day to day Wow, that one-third data
0: point is incredible. Only one-third of attacks were detected by an org's internal tools. Two out of three times, it's not your tools telling you. That's incredible. Destructive attacks is actually, that was a little lower than I thought, 25%. I assume ransomware is kind of included in there because the percentages were so close, 25 and 24. That makes me think like, you know, if 25% are destructive and ransomware is destructive, you know, that's 24%. So there's only like basically a 1% delta of attacks that are destructive, but not ransom which makes sense because for the most part, attackers aren't just doing it to blow stuff up and cause havoc. They're financially motivated today. That's part of the problem. So to me, the MSSP callout also is interesting. IBM rolled off their services arm, Kendall, a year, year and a half ago. So again, I know cyber folks tend to come to things with a skeptical mind. I mentioned at the beginning of this segment that IBM's considered the gold standard in this, but just in case you think they're trying to toot their own horn, I don't believe that to be the case. Rather, one of the points I've been making on this show for many years now, and Andy as well, has been that the cloud has almost become a security imperative for organizations. And the reason we believe that is because you are looking for those proverbial needles in a haystack, that very small signal in a sea of noise. And the more scale you have, the more data you have, the more diversity of data you have, the easier you can pick out those little bits of pattern that could represent an attack. And cloud scale gets you part of the way there. And I think that's beneficial because when you have, again, we both work for Microsoft, you have like a Microsoft tool that has 65 trillion daily signals ingested in it. Chances are you have a better chance of finding that signal amongst the noise and then blocking that attack at first sight. MSSPs operate on that same principle. You could have the best SecOps team in the world. You could have the best SOC in the world but they only see what your organization sees. They don't get that broader sense of scale and visibility. And that's where the MSSP comes in because they're protecting multiple customers, maybe across different industries, different geographies. They get that benefit of scale and scope the greater quantity of data, the greater diversity of data. And they're able to protect all those organizations at scale better than any one of them can do by themselves. I believe we are reaching that point if we have not already, and this report seems like it's backing me up on this, where an MSSP is a security imperative because of those same reasons that the cloud was a security imperative and still is that we've been talking about going back to the late 2010s. So this IBM report seems like it's backing that up. 40% of attacks were identified by an MSSP. They brought that to the attention of the company who's contracted with them. If you have an MSSP, you can remediate and contain the breach in 80% of the time it would take an organization without an MSSP. Having that extra hand, an extra set of eyes really makes a difference. So to me, that's really compelling data points as we start off the review of this IBM cost of a data breach report.
1: And oftentimes, thinking back to some of my experience in conversations about MSSP with internal leaders, the the hesitancy of using an MSSP usually comes down to the data that they control or can see. And so, you do need to evaluate your MSSP to figure out what are they using on the back end because some organizations will use say Splunk in the cloud and manage different Splunk instances or Logarithm, or Elastic or whatever it is, and then if you ever leave that organization they're not going to allow you to take that data with them. Let's say you want to switch from an MSSP managing your data, like hooking your data into their Splunk instance. And now you want to leave. Well, the data sits with their Splunk instance. You can't just take it with you. And so you have to start up brand new with brand new rules and everything that you've tuned over a long period of time. So you do need to evaluate the reputation of the MSSP, how they're managing the data, or maybe look at a tool that has this type of access built in to it, for example, with Microsoft's solutions, you do have something called Lighthouse, which allows vendors or MSSPs to manage multiple instances and just hook into your environment, rather than you hooking your environment into theirs. And so, Lighthouse allows MSSPs to access your environment securely, and then you can revoke that access, so your data always stays with you. So that's another thing to think about, because that has been something that I've heard as a argument against using an MSSP because we're not really sure if we ever leave them. You know, we have this relationship and we're never going to be able to take our data. Well, if you're using Microsoft solutions, we can provide a way to hook into your data securely without ever taking that data out. And so if you ever kick them to the curb and you want to use someone else, go right ahead because all your data is still there.
0: I'm glad you made that point. I was going to make it. So you did it for me. I've met with two very popular MSSPs recently, and I'm not going to name names, but the difference in their deployment model was staggering. Because they could not be more different. Vendor A says, We will stand up a Microsoft Sentinel environment within the customer's tenant and we will populate all of our custom IP, like rules and scripts and everything in the customer environment. So, actually, our model is if the customer leaves us, we actually leave that behind. They get to keep that. And they're like, Maybe that's not the best or most aggressive business model, but we feel like that's the right approach because that way the customer is not out on the curb if they do choose to leave us and go somewhere else. They have all of their data. And they honestly have all of the kind of custom rules and alerting that we created on their behalf in their environment. And then MSSPB, everything is custom IP. You forward everything to their environment, which is, I guess, a custom IP SIM they've built themselves. And they do it all in that portal and in that environment. And they seem very good. They have a great reputation. They're a really good provider. And there would be ways to mitigate that risk. Like you could also forward all those logs and keep them in your own SIM under your control. Maybe not do a lot with it, but maybe just more of a log analytics type instance where you're just, it's a log repository, and then forward them to that MSSP for them to do the analysis. And that way, if you ever do leave them, you at least have the repository and you didn't really lose data. And that's a way to mitigate the risk. Long story short, if you have objections against potentially some of the deployment models you've heard in the past, shop around. Because one thing I've noticed is there is a great differential in how a lot of these providers go about their work and implement it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it wouldn't be complete if we wouldn't talk about the recommendations from the cost of a data breach report. Of course, IBM has some recommendations at the bottom. We'll go through some of these fairly quickly. But the first one is build security into every stage of software development and deployment and test regularly. So essentially DevSecOps. We had a great episode with Tanya Jenka, who wrote the book on application security, secure by design, secure by default. So if you are developing any type of software, you got to build that security room in the house so to speak in the blueprints and not later at a certain time when the house is already built and you need to do application testing you need to do fuzzing you need to do pen testing you need to do dynamic code analysis instead of just static of course static is part of it but also you know that fuzzing and dynamic application testing is also a big part of it so if you're doing any type of deployment devsecops must be secure by design, secure by default. You know,
0: there's an old joke at this point, almost saying at Microsoft, where whatever is the hot thing we're all supposed to be selling right now, we will get a sales leader who will say something to the effect of, you are all power platform sellers, or you are all surface sellers, or you are all dynamics sellers. Well, to apply that here, if you're in application development, you are an infosec professional. Security is your job. Even if it's not your primary function, it is the most important second function of your job if you write code writing secure code is your job
1: this second one i also thought was super interesting modernizing data protections across hybrid cloud and we're going to do a data protection episode shortly but this is talking about data stored in multiple cloud environments, like structured data or semi structured data. And so data is being shared and accessed across multi cloud environments, AWS, Azure, or GCP at a staggering scale, and the risk of shadow data or sensitive data not being tracked or managed is at an all time high. And so in this report, it said the majority of data breaches 82% involved some sort of data stored in cloud environments. So you really need to start looking at a data security plan or projects. and new technologies like data security posture management that was the first i've ever heard of this term being used reading this term in this report data security posture management it can help you find unknown and sensitive data across the cloud including structured and unstructured assets and so structured assets are like sql databases you know log analytics those sorts of things the tables and then unstructured assets you know something like um 365 data so you really need to start looking at data security and we will talk about how to get into that from a data security mindset and project planning, but this is huge.
0: Data security posture management, that's a new one on me too. Don't know if I've heard that one before, but the concepts in it are familiar. Essentially what they're saying is know your data, know where it lives, know its sensitivity, know how you're protecting it. That is very, very important. So I love that this is something we're leading with here because I've been at Microsoft six and a half years and essentially my first several years, part of my responsibility was talking about information protection. At the time it was Azure information protection, then it was Microsoft information protection, Now it's Microsoft Purview Information Protection. The name has changed, but a lot of the concepts have stayed the same. And what I noticed was, and I always used to explain this, customers saw the value in it. They saw the importance of it. Yes, we would like to have everything with a sensitivity label on it. We'd like to apply protection to our most sensitive data. We want to wrap our arms around this, but it just never got high enough on that priority list. And we know how things go in our our line of business. Something else always jumps to the front. And maybe I sound like I'm proclaiming that this is the year of the Linux desktop. (laughs) when I say this, but it feels like we have finally reached the point when data security has gotten to the top of that list and is starting to become an actual priority that is being actively worked on at a lot of enterprises. That's the way it feels to me. We certainly recognize this. It's something that we are prioritizing internally at Microsoft. We're reorganizing our resources around talking about data security, and that's in response to customers telling us this is important to them. So it's a reactive thing where we're getting those signals from customers they want to talk about it now. So IBM calling this out, modernizing data protection, I think very, very timely here that we're seeing the same signals at our employer that this is becoming really important. So definitely something to work on. There's a lot of tools out there that can help, but the call out I'll make is there is never a better time to start than today. And the problem only gets exponentially worse tomorrow. There's an example that says something to the effect of data is growing at a rate that is literally exponential. So let's say you have you know one exabyte of data today, you'll have five exabytes of data a year from now. Something like that. Like it's exploding. And so the longer you wait to wrap your arms around this, the bigger the problem gets. And organizations a lot of time get really hung up on how do we take care of all our old data? And the thing is, you're going to create five times as much data in the next year than you did in your entire existence up to this point or something like that. It's in that ballpark. So it's really, really, really important you get started on this today. And we'll talk more about it in a future show. The
1: next point is, Using security AI and automation to increase speed and accuracy. So, the extensive use of security AI and automation has delivered nearly $1.8 million in data breach cost savings and accelerated the time to identify and contain breaches by more than 100 days compared to organizations that aren't using it. So, definitely use some sort of SOAR platform. Look at your SIM and take a look at if it has automation and remediation response built in so that you can automate those responses rather than take manual action and definitely look at security AI I don't know of many security AI products out there other than security copilot which is one of the things that Microsoft has been really heavily marketing we're in early access right now so if you're interested in testing it I've seen some demos of it I haven't actually had hands-on yet but some of the demos are very very impressive so being able to identify and correlate different incidents that you have being able to explain some of the codes and scripts in plain language You know, just being able to ask plain questions to a large language model and getting that security response. So it's tightly focused around security. That's the scope of it. And so if you're looking for a demo, reach out to your Microsoft rep about it. And we're looking at early access programs. And I think general availability is not till sometime next year. But it is definitely impressive. And if you're a mature organization looking to expand on that, it is one of the things that I think is going to make a huge difference in Defenders going forward.
0: Agreed. Very little to add there, other than to say there have been two schools of thought in how we approach InfoSec for quite some time now. There has been the school of thought that I need to go by the boutique best of breed solution in each siloed category to be successful. You know, let's say I need a proof point for email, I need a CrowdStrike for endpoint, I need Okta for identity, which is not to say Microsoft is not best of breed in those categories. They are as well. However, that's been the thought process because Microsoft is positioned you should do a security platform where everything is integrated together, you have data flowing across the platform, you reduce gaps of visibility, blah, blah, blah. We've talked about that. However, I think there's continued to be this idea that, well, you know, I'll just keep using this disparate solutions, I'll funnel everything into a sim, and that will be my glue, that will help me stitch everything together, that will help me tell the story. I think we are reaching a challenging day, potentially an inflection point, where that model doesn't work in an AI. Age where you need that intelligent assistant, that co pilot, if you will, to help you. Can't be much help if I've got five different co pilots I have to go ask. I'll go ask Proofpoint Co pilot about my email, and then I'll go I'll ask
1: CrowdStrike copilot about my endpoint. Like that doesn't work. That kind of model doesn't work. Just to interject here, I mean, based on the report, we know it doesn't work, right? Because a third of organizations are the only ones detecting these <laughs> breaches. Two thirds <laughs> of organizations using their internal tools in a best of breed model, probably. Yeah. aren't able to figure out that they have been breached.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Great call out there. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have a crystal ball. If I did, I might not be doing the show anymore. I might be on a yacht somewhere. But what I can say is I do think, and, and maybe this isn't a spicy take by any means, but it's a take nonetheless, that AI is going to change our architectural model for InfoSec because we're going to need more data in a single storage place that can be reasoned over by an AI model for it to... make sense. What that looks like, that's maybe to be determined. I am paid to think that that's a platform and I happen to agree with that approach, but there's going to be a reckoning here where something's going to have to give because I will say that current kind of considered best practice model, I don't think scales to an AI co-pilot kind of generation of security defenders. So we'll figure that out together and we'll see what that looks like. But plant a seed there and, and water it and come look back on this in a little bit.
1: And that's, not to say that Security Copilot with Microsoft isn't going to work with the third-party tools like a CrowdStrike or an Okta or Proofpoint, Mimecast, whatnot. I have talked to the Security Copilot team, the product group, and. The plan is to expand to those third-party products at some point. Obviously, we're going to build this AI model around our tools first, and it's going to be easiest and integrated with our tools first. So take that as you will. I don't think in the future, maybe a couple years from now, that if you still wanted to use those best-of-breed models and you don't want to, quote-unquote, put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, I think Security Copilot will work with that. I don't think it'll work as well because those vendors will have to provide APIs and some sort of hook into their product to allow that data to flow into security copilot it's just not going to have native access so that's part of the issue is that the product team has to work with these vendors to provide access into that data store that adam is talking about having that one spot for all your data to flow to analyze with this large language model and without that we're not going to be able to do that all it has is like maybe a name of an incident or something like that right it actually needs the data that is within say like a CrowdStrike, which is deep at the kernel level of processes that are running and execution of files and different things that are happening at the kernel level. And you're not going to get that just by forwarding a quote unquote incident. Okay, we had an incident, which is what like a SIM does, right? Like you're not going to be able to analyze that with a large language model in AI.
0: Right, I mean, the SIM maybe has the best chance of success here to be that bringing everything together tool. But to your point, is having, you know, textual logs flowing into a thing, going to be able to stitch them together in the same way as having a relational database of those things? those aren't the same thing. And that's a lot more challenging to do and to do consistently and accurately. So more to come for sure. I'm just saying IBM is saying this will help. And I'm saying, I think we're going to have to adjust our architectural thinking in a lot of organizations to make these tools meaningfully valuable because the idea of having five different co-pilots we have to go ask for each security domain is a non-starter.
1: Agree. The final point in the report is strengthen your resiliency by knowing your attack surface and practicing incident response. We've talked about this on previous shows multiple times using tools like adversary simulation, which I know the Microsoft tools, we have attack simulations built in for both email and endpoint. Maybe your other security tools have them as well, but practicing those, understanding the risk profile of the alert when it comes in, being able to triage it. You also need to train your team that has the right. protocols the right manuals that they can so to speak take off the shelf i'm dating myself with that because in the military when i was doing incident response that way you know we actually had manuals that we'd pull off for different scenarios but you'd have playbooks like digital playbooks to run and have those scoped for different scenarios like this is my ransomware playbook who are my contacts this is what the alerts look like you know this is how to triage and you have to tabletop these so that you know i often use my experience when i was flying with the military is you can't look at the emergency response when you're in an emergency you need to have that memorized so if you're a pilot in the military you have emergency procedures and you need to know them by heart for every single airframe that you're actually flying now that's not to say that you're going to not take out the book and go through it but you should have that memorized at least the first couple of steps because engine on fire is an emergency like you can't be like oh what do I do? You need to know the first thing to do is to shut off the PEL or you know the throttle. Reduce fuel to the engine so that there isn't a fire, right? So there are emergency procedures in place. The point is you need to know these, practice these, and during an emergency is not the time to learn it. So you have to practice them. And it's hard to justify carving out that time, getting that
0: team together for those exercises, but it's worth it. I will say kind of on a related example, I have the opportunity to work with technical specialists like Andy and his peers who go deeper technically in a lot of the solutions that we go to talk to customers about. And sometimes there will be opportunities pop up for internal learning where Andy may block his entire week on his calendar and I can't schedule him to go talk to customers about stuff. But if I don't let Andy invest that time and learn what's new, how things work, what's coming, then he can't do his job as effectively. Because if we go talk to a customer and they say, hey, what's this new thing? He says, I don't know. Well, that's not very helpful. So investing time in whatever it is and in this case, it's those ongoing, not just learning, but those practice tabletop exercises and simulations and cyber ranges and playbooks that is time well spent because when the emergency comes, you're prepared. And if you want to look at what that looks like in practice, I'd say pretty recently we've had a rash of incidents in commercial aviation. I think of there was a Boeing 717, a Delta aircraft where the front nose gear didn't come down and they landed the plane with only the rear landing gear. And yes, it eventually skidded on the airframe on the runway, but the pilot set it down so gently and must have known exactly the procedure to follow to do that safely that nobody was even injured. In fact, I saw video recorded inside the cabin and it was a smoother, softer landing than a lot of the landings I've had in fully functional aircraft. And I think of other recent like aircraft where they turned around mid-flight or they had to evacuate the plane on the runway, got out the slides and everything in Atlanta recently. And nobody was hurt in any of these. And even though things went wrong, people followed the procedure and the playbook, and these emergencies were mitigated and wound up being minimally damaging to both, you know, the aircraft themselves or to the people on board. And that's what we're aiming for here. With this is getting to the point when we have such great incident response in our organizations that an attacker breached kind of the initial defenses is not a big deal because we've got layers of defenses. We've got a plan in place. We can eradicate and eliminate them from the environment with minimal damage. So that's our North Star is being like all these success stories. I'd say ultimately from commercial aviation where things have gone wrong on aircraft and we've mitigated that and gotten people to where they needed to go safely anyway.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, this was a great episode. A lot of different concepts here. Hopefully you took away something from today to help you secure your organization for tomorrow. That's our show for this week. Thanks for watching and listening. As always, our contact information will be in the show notes if you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about in the future. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJawZero and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.